0: get recording. Hi, Michael, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Where are you calling in from today?
1: Hey, Andrew, Uh, I'm calling in from the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, How about yourself?
0: Amazing. Uh, I'm in sunny Philadelphia, which is actually pretty sunny today. Um, So for our listeners who might be a little less familiar with you, can you give a really brief overview of your career to date and how you've ended up in FinTech?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And before we jump in, I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, A huge fan of the podcast. You've had some extraordinary founders and investors on the podcast here. So excited to be here with you.
0: Much appreciated.
1: Awesome. So, yeah, you know, how did I end up in fintech? So coming out of school, I studied economics at Berkeley and went directly into investment banking really focused on technology. And I did two things in investment banking. It was private capital fundraises in addition to MA. and um, And from there, I went to a firm called Canaan Partners and I actually moved to New York immediately, um, You know, uh, prior to that to join Canaan. And a guy named Dan Saporin hired me there. Dan, former, uh, prior to Canaan, ran debit at MasterCard. And so he was really my entry point into FinTech and that's where I've been for the last decade here. Dan was an extraordinary investor and mentor and um, somebody who's still very close to me. And then from Canaan, um, I actually moved back to San Francisco to come home and met Thomas LaFont, who started the private business here at Co2. And, you know, one thing led to another, and I ended up coming over here to join the team where I've been for three and a half years and run the fintech practice.
0: Amazing. And we'll we'll dig a lot into your time at KOTU, I'm sure. But um, you started your career in investment banking, as you just said. I'm curious. I think I've read online you said that IB is kind of the best place to start your career if you want to eventually transition into investing. Do you still think yeah. that's true?
1: So I will amend it from best um, because I, I do think it's very situational and, and it kind of depends on the person. The things that I personally loved about investment banking, you come out of school as a very young professional and you immediately get exposure to board members and management teams and you're part of deals that are transformational, right? In the M&A scenario, these founders have been working on these businesses for you know a decade plus in many cases. And so to have exposure to that and to see processes happen you know as a 22-year-old, I, I just think you, you really can't beat that high-level experience. You also learn financial chops, which as an investor, you will need um, really regardless of, of any stage. But what I'll say now, this far into my career, I've had the chance to sit on boards with some extraordinary investors and they come from all walks of life. And so I think as an investor, you just kind of have to find what your lens is, right? Um, a lot of folks will come in with an operating lens or a marketing lens, um, sometimes legal, right? And... The, the power of boards is really um, in diversity of backgrounds and and interests and experiences. And um, so while I think it's a very good one, it's, it's unique to the person.
0: Amazing. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen many investors come from many walks, but banking is, mm-hmm. and certainly the financial chops are, are a huge plus. Um, mm-hmm. So we'd love to talk a bit about your investing philosophy and, and maybe to start with your day-to-day uh, let's say, so since 2019, You've been at CO2, you're currently CEO, co COO co-COO of growth, and co lead of fintech. Love to hear a little bit more about the day to day at CO2 and how you describe your role.
1: Yeah. Maybe I'll talk a little bit about why I joined CO2 first and what I feel is so special about the firm, and that will inform the day to day a little bit. You know, when I first started talking to Thomas, what, what strikes you about the firm is it's a truly global firm. You know, we have investments all over the world. And you know, as you know, we invest seed through public. And so the range of companies and trends you get exposure to, I feel is unmatched, right. And so as a result of that, on any given day, I can be in an investment committee. And we're talking about a very exciting seed stage opportunity. And we're talking about a very large position in a public company, right. And this will happen, you know, all in the same meeting. And so on any given day, I could be working with founders in a board setting. I had a call this morning working with one of our fintech teams, talking about go-to-market and product experience. You know, and then there's a lot of internal stuff that comes along with, you know, uh, working at a, a global multi-stage firm. We're constantly looking at the portfolio on both the public and private side, identifying identifying areas where we want to be more aggressive and maybe own more of certain businesses or identifying risk, right? And I think that's kind of been the, you know, really the focal point of the last 12 months here, um, as the markets have corrected. And then there's things on top of that, right? The other side of our business, uh, opposite of founders, uh, are LPs, right? So we're spending, we spend a lot of time with our LPs, talking them through strategies and trends and making sure they have a firm understanding of the portfolio. And so it's cliche, but there really isn't a single day that looks the same here at Cotu. Um, And then the last thing I would say, which really attracted me, and it also informs the day-to-day investing and supporting companies is, is truly a team sport at Cotu. If you go and talk to our founders, generally speaking, they're going to have five, six, seven touch points across the firm on the investor side, on the legal side, we have a data science team that, um, you know our partners to us and everything that we do and so um you know because of the diversity of um you know focus here no no two days look the same
0: yeah so certainly one of the perks of being in a big international and multi-stage investor surely Indeed.
1: um
0: so moving a little bit to fintech so clearly as kind of you know we're sitting here in early 2023 fintech valuations have fallen a little bit from since the highs of the bull market. Um, And I think there's been a lot of introspection regarding, you know, good fintech investments. So I'd love to hear a bit more about your personal philosophy on fintech investing and just what Mm -hmm. makes a great fintech investment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt. I mean, valuations are down really all across tech and even outside of tech for that matter. Right. What I feel very strongly is that... um, fintech is is very, very nuanced. And I think when you talk about the category, you really have to look at all of the different sectors by themselves. We've done a bunch of work across sector. And, and one thing that I'll point out, we looked at enterprise software, industrials, consumer, and fintech. If you look at the public universe today, the variance of multiples in the category are higher than any other sector. And so what does that mean? That means there are more business model types in financial services than any other sector. And so, when we look at what's happened over the last 12 months, all of the fintech valuations are down, but there are certain subsectors that have really outperformed not just the fintech index, but really the rest of the market, right? And when you analyze the businesses that have held up well, you kind of get back to the basics, right? These are businesses with very high net dollar retention, high gross profit, strong unit economics in TAMS that are still, you know, barely penetrated. That are enjoying secular tailwinds that you know we like, regardless of category. And so, um, I think you need that lens from a risk management standpoint today, but also from a new a new investment standpoint. And it's something that we think about a lot.
0: I'd, I'd love to quote back Dimitri Dadimov to you, who's obviously CEO of Modern Treasury, someone you know well, and uh, who we interviewed a month ago, a few months ago. Uh, he summarized his takeaway kind of from, from this all as fintechs not all the same, some e-commerce that looks like fintech selling financial services as a DC product, while some mm-hmm. is true software and margins and multiples follow. So would you add any nuance onto that? And I guess a follow-on would be kind of what are the sectors that you've really been focusing on?
1: Yeah, he's exactly right you know, and I would say Dimitri is building a business in one of the strongest categories within FinTech. And if you look at, you know, the universe itself, payments businesses and payments operation businesses are at the top of the list. Uh, And so uh, I continue to be very excited about, um, you know, Dimitri and everything they're they're doing. Um, In terms of, what we're excited about uh, overall, just sector wise and and kind of trend wise, you know, there are a couple of things. One, if you look at our portfolio today, it's heavily skewed B2B, and we're going to continue to be focused on on B2B fintech and um, a range of services there. And, you know, the headline in fintech is if you look at financial services, you know, banks and insurance companies today, a lot of them are close to 100 years old. Right. Um, And that experience needs to be reset and this is why the excitement is true all across fintech and in b2b in particular we like it a lot because the underlying metrics are much healthier for a few structural reasons one in b2b if you onboard an expense management platform for example there's going to be three or four or five different sas integrations that come along with adopting that suite right and so what does that mean? That just means there's more friction to switch, right? Whereas a consumer if I go get a bank account, I really kind of just have to change the routing and account number for myself personally. And if somebody's dangling a $500 credit to go and, you know, switch my bank account, it's very easy to do that. Right? I think the second thing is if you just look at GDP in the US over time, it's kind of, you know, on average 2 to 3% growth a year. This just very simply means businesses are are growing at this rate unfortunately if you look at consumers and you take out the top tax brackets they grow kind of 0 to 1% annually right and so if i just look at a cohort of customers in a b2c business versus a b2b business there's 2 to 3 times you know more growth in a b2b business overall and i think that's why we've seen the success i, I want to be careful because the consumer facing fintechs are chasing one of the largest opportunities in the world. And there are a lot of businesses that have done extraordinarily well uh, by bundling their products and, and going after that opportunity. So that's one. And I think related to the B2C piece, we're really excited about founders who are not afraid to own the balance sheet now. Right. And as I kind of think about really the last decade, balance sheet has been a bad word. Interest rates have been very low. So there's really been no uh, strong reason to own the balance sheet. But today, as we're seeing, there's a huge benefit to deposits uh, capitalizing on float. And there's a huge benefit to having a balance sheet so that you don't have to deal with either bank partners or you know capital markets partners on the debt side. And you kind of control your own destiny and you have the ability to just grow the asset base. And I think this is something that a lot of folks will lean into much, much earlier. The last thing I would say we're very excited about, it continues to be fintech across Latin America. We have a number of investments there and we feel like this is one of the strongest fintech markets um, and certainly one of the most profitable fintech markets in the world that already supports half a trillion dollars in in fintech market cap. And I think that the IPO performance has been quite strong with companies like Nubank and Dlocal, we have Mercado Lee right down there. That's really a payments business. Um, so those are kind of the three core areas we're focused on right now.
0: Amazing, very succinct, and uh, some some big topic areas to focus on. Um, pivoting very slightly, I think it was in 2019 you wrote a blog post stating, you know, you believe all big brands will be fintech. So I know mm-hmm. that verticalization, embedded finance, banking as service has kind of blossomed in the intervening years. I'd love to hear if you have any uh, updates on that prediction.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, (laughs) that one has really come true. I I think we're going to continue to see scaled consumer businesses and scaled software businesses bolting on financial products to, one, really improve the experience for customers, right? If you can suddenly consolidate four or five or six different products into one platform, there's real synergies there and it just makes workflows a lot better. Right. I was kind of thinking about it and you was thinking about your question ahead of time. Apple Pay today is processing six trillion dollars in payment volume. It's a it's a massive number that you know nobody was really thinking about just holding their iPhone, you know, even five or six years ago. You look at Shopify Pay; they're expected to do 120 billion in total processing volume this year. In 23, I mentioned Mercado Libre; they did three and a half billion in fintech revenues in in 2022. It's almost half of their revenue base and majority of their profit. And so, there are some major data points to suggest uh, businesses can and will be very successful here. And and I I really think we're just getting started.
0: Fantastic. So. More recently, you are one of the authors of KOTU's extremely widely cited white paper. Um, aside to our listeners here, you have probably seen a lot of snippets of this if you're chronically on FinTech Twitter, as I am. Um, and I really do recommend reading the whole paper. So for our listeners who may not have encountered it, it, um, could you summarize some of the high-level points?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, this is something that we worked on with my partners, Chase and Leslie here. And the exercise really started as an internal view. We're really big on data and decks here at Code2. And we wanted to just kind of pause and say, where are we, right? We just experienced what is the very first venture boom in FinTech, right? If you look at, you know, go back to 99, you know, to 2010, there was very little, uh, you know, innovation within fintech. People didn't really know how to approach it, and that's obviously changed. I think people woke up to the the opportunity there, and 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 again, really these underpenetrated TAMS. I think the key takeaways there. Um, I came out of it, and we have on one of the slides, we're still in the very first inning. What's the data to support that? Right, there's over 11 trillion dollars of financial services market cap out there only 2% of that today is fintech market cap, right? And we kind of defi- define fintech as had gone public within the last decade or so, right? And you kind of put that on a page next to the legacy banks and you know they're in the you know, 75 to hundred years old range. Um, did I lose you, Andrew? Oh, there you go. You, you were frozen for a sec. Um, and so we we firmly believe there's a lot of room for innovation from here to go out and attack this market cap, which is also supported by you know six trillion dollars in gross profit. So we're really just getting started. I, I think the key is again, we touched on this a little bit. It's nuanced. And as an investor and an operator, you just have to be cognizant of the category you're going after and and how it should be valued ultimately. These are all massive opportunities, but they shouldn't all be valued the same.
0: And on that note, you kind of highlighted the difference between uh battle-tested and unproven fintech models in this current downturn. So I'd love Mm -hmm. to hear a little, you elaborate a little bit on that different.
1: Yeah, you know, the battle-tested businesses, you kind of see the outperformance over the last 12 months and over the last five years, really any time period you look at it. These are models that have outperformed and we looked at the business types instead of each one of these. What stands out is these are businesses that kind of existed before. There was market cap that had been supported within this product set. And, you know, I kind of look at that and say there's a reason. There's a reason for this. It's very easy to sit there and bash the banks, but they're very innovative and they've tried many of these things. And what we're seeing now is you really do want to focus on the categories uh, where market cap exists and consumers are used to buying financial products in a certain way. With that being said, I think there are a lot of companies in the unproven bucket that will be in the kind of battle tested bucket over time. And these are companies that try to do something, you know, unique with the capital structure, you know, I mentioned partner banks before. Um there's a lot of nuanced underwriting in both lending and insure tech that are very interesting and and hopefully some of those play out in a in a major way moving forward.
0: Definitely. And I'd love to I've I've been prompted to ask you. So I'd love to ask you a little bit about The kind of rule of 200 that you and your team have kind of coined, and what exactly it is, and how we can use it to assess mature fintechs.
1: Yeah. So there's the rule of 40 in software, um, and that really captures revenue growth and profitability, right? Going back to this point that fintech is very nuanced, we needed a way to distill, frankly, additional data points and metrics for these businesses right and so what we've done is we've added two variables here net dollar retention and gross profit so the rule of 200 is very simply ndr net dollar retention revenue growth gross profit percent and ebit percent and a lot of people you mentioned twitter a lot of people on twitter were saying why on earth would you have gross profit and ebit you know in this calculation the reality is many of these businesses are not quite scaled, right? And you need to look at both of these side by side. I think gross profit points to you know, the ability to get to a certain profitability metric over time to ultimately support whatever you're spending on sales and marketing, right? And so there are a number of examples of high gross profit businesses with very, very negative EBIT that are spending a lot of money on sales and marketing. And so the unit economics break down. NDR is very important to put into the calculation because that tells you, hey, how good is this business model? If you go back to the beginning of SaaS, right? Everybody loves SaaS because you have this baked in NDR, right? There's there's annual contracts. You have the ability to upsell with other products. And so we see a lot of companies across uh, really payments in general and, and bill pay and SMB acquiring, where these NDRs are best in class, not only in fintech, but also in software. And and we wanted to make sure we rewarded these businesses, um, you know, on this metric.
0: Fantastic. So from a little bit of digging, uh, it seems like you're part of some of the kind of very early fintech communities around, you know, the early 2010s. I'd just love to hear how you've seen the fintech community evolve since then.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the punchline is it's grown. (laughs) It's grown quite a bit. You know, fintech in New York in kind of the 2013, 2014 time period, it it really felt like a tiny community. There's probably five investors that I would talk to every day that were very deep on fintech and kind of, you know, learning uh, about the industry as it was unfolding, you know, in real time. Today, I mean that community is probably 10, 20, 30x the size. And that's a great thing for the industry, right? I think as you think about the companies that have been built and the kind of you know, product building and, and culture DNA coming out of companies like a Square or an Adjun or a Bill.com. You know, this is only going to lead to more growth and innovation in the space. Uh, I think you also have a, you know a crop of fintech investors that have been around for a long time that also hopefully bring some experience to boards and you know have seen a number of things that that work and do not work. So um, it's growing a ton. I think it will continue to grow from here and it's been uh, it's been a, a really fun ride uh, over the last decade or so here.
0: We've certainly seen a pretty huge explosion in terms of, you know, fintech specialty investors and thankfully it gives us plenty of great people to talk to some of whom, you know, have 10 plus years experience and some of whom are, have come up in the most recent crop. So, um, I know you're a very proud Cal alum. Um, you've helped set up kind of the Berkeley Alumni Association in New York. So, as someone who spent a lot of time on both coasts, I'd love to hear a little bit about the differences that you see in the fintech community, specifically, kind of between SF and New York.
1: Yeah, yeah. The uh, the Berkeley Alumni Association in New York is uh, something we're all very proud of, and uh, a number of my closest friends can came out of that. You know, what we did with that is they're they're. Berkeley is one of the largest schools you know, in the world, um, and we brought together a community of thousands of folks around the arts and around technology, philanthropy uh, during that time I was in New York. And, you know, as I think about the difference between the two coasts, I think today it's a mistake to try to compare the two cities or really any two cities you know this trend started well before covid but covid certainly accelerated it and it's maybe one of the you know few things that is gonna stay through the you know the covid bump as they say and innovation is really happening everywhere right i was just in london last week uh, we hosted a big fintech dinner there and i just continue to be blown away by the, you know the founder talent and you know, diversity of experiences. I mentioned Adjun earlier, I think that's going to be really kind of the next, uh, you know, big crop of folks to start, um, you know, very large public companies. We, I, I mentioned earlier, we're on a number of boards across Brazil and Mexico, all over Europe and China. So we really have a global lens. I think, um, there are certain cities all over the world that maybe have more vertical focus or sector focus than, than others, but, um, we're, we're really excited about both.
0: Just because uh, one of our more recent guests was um, Peter Lord from Kodat, who's also UK based yep. and has spent a bit of time in both. Um, pushing on that you know, uh, observation kind of about London, um, he had a take that was More or less, he sees that companies in the UK have been had to be a bit scrappier, a bit more focused on unit economics earlier, partially just Mm -hmm. because the funding environment is probably a little less generous than it might be if you're based in the heart of Silicon Valley. Do you Mm -hmm. agree with that? Do you think that's probably been eroded away by the kind of internationalization of capital? Very curious to hear.
1: You know, I don't live there and I haven't started a company there, so I don't want to be the authority on it. I, I would like to think it's been eroded away right um i think the world is just more connected than ever and you know i was talking to the cfo of a public company there and he was kind of talking about fundraising back in the early days and this is you know probably 8 years ago for this business and what they did is they planned the fundraise where they started in san francisco then they went to new york and then they went to london and the plan was to have the fundraise done by the time they got back to london so this is kind of a week later right and so I do think historically, maybe investors here in the Valley were a little bit more aggressive and faster, and willing to look beyond um, short-term unit economics and underwrite the ability to get there. But I, I think these lines have really blurred, and there's, you know, um, there's benefits to really being anywhere, right? Um, so I, I, um, I, I'd like to think that's changed
0: and i'm sure at somewhere like co2 where you get to invest across stages and across geographies that's even even more the case yeah correct so moving to kind of the close of the interview um we always like to ask people kind of some lessons they've learned and so on so what are some of the hard-earned learnings that you'd like to share with other investors who might be earlier along in their journey
1: yeah so one of my old partners here, a guy named Chris Fredrickson, who's one of the best partners I ever had, uh, incredible human being and investor. He would always kind of say, you can't fight the physics of the P&L, you know? And this is something that we've learned uh, the hard way and, and kind of what he means by that and, and what we practice is, you know, when you see a trend around, whether it's retention or gross profit, anytime you underwrite a reversal in the trend, in the P&L, it, it tends to not work out. Now it can, but when you're convincing yourself that this was a, it was a bad quarter or a bad couple of quarters, it's very rare that that turns around. So you really need to pay attention to the physics of the p and I think the other thing that I have learned, and it's something that we think about and talk about a lot and, and hire around this at CO2, is just kind of the power of focus and network right within the ecosystem. We've talked a lot about you know, the benefits of being in fintech for the last decade. And, you know, these relationships compound, whether they're with founders, co-investors, incumbent executives who want to understand what's going on and maybe buy these companies, or maybe they join as an advisor. And so I've just seen the, the, the power of that focus and, and kind of branding at the firm level and personal level and sector level that, um, I think it's just good for folks kind of coming up in the business to think about um you know, it's it's uh it's something that is a superpower for many of us here.
0: Yeah, and certainly it's it's amazing to hear how many of our guests have not even just met each other, but our good friends hang out on the weekends yeah. and so on. Um so as we're heading into new year twenty twenty three, do you still believe that February fifteenth is the best day to start fundraising? <laughs>
1: So this year I would say Feb fifteen of twenty twenty four is probably the best day to start. Um, you know, when I tweeted that it was it was a different time, you know. I think the the deal pace, um, you know, you could you could be start to finish on a deal in a week. And I think a lot of people just had this thought that, hey, it's a new year, we're gonna fundraise as soon as the year starts, we're gonna get ready over the holidays and come out and That just created kind of a backlog, you know, for investors and founders at the very beginning of the year. And so the Fib 15 came out of, hey, let's let the kind of first wave wash out and then come out when I can have investors' full attention um, to go out and fundraise. But, you know, the the reality of the capital markets today is that things have slowed down tremendously. And these are natural cycles. They'll continue to happen we'll have another one and you know seven to ten years from now and and we'll be saying the same thing and so the advice to founders today um cash is king you need economics are king um you know it, it's really time to buy yourself as much runway as you can so that you can come out in a better better capital markets environment where you're going to like the valuation a lot better than you are today
0: And on the topic of advice, um, something we've recently started asking, you know, both founders and investors, which I love to hear is, do you have any fintech hot takes you'd like to share with the listeners?
1: Yeah. You know, I would say there's two things. One, this is maybe a little bit less of a hot take, but just consolidation, right? I think, and, and it's not just fintech, I would say tech in general. There were a lot of new companies started and funded over the last, call it five to six years. And I think there are very powerful synergies depending on the category to combine them, right? In some cases, they're in the same country and they're just battling each other head to head. And you see that in the, you know, acquisition costs. In other cases, hey, maybe you have a, a leading payment service provider in Europe that wants to, you know, become a global business. They should look at someone in the US and or LATAM, right? And so I think, um As we get further into this downturn, consolidation is going to come in a big way across a number of categories. And then the second hot take is I think the sector outperforms here, uh, from here, right? As we looked at, I I love the kind of the battle-tested framework because what's happened is kind of uh, indiscriminately, fintech valuations have fallen. People are labeling it the same way they did on the way up. They're doing it on the way down. It's fintech. We're going to sell it. But there are... Some very, very high quality businesses that I believe will be $100 billion market cap businesses that have been unfairly sold off here. And so I think because of those companies and where they sit today, we're going to see some pretty stark outperformance in some of these best names uh, on the public side, you know, over the next, call it, you know, two to three years.
0: Those some great takes for our listeners and we all have our uh, fingers crossed the upside coming for, uh, for FinTech. So Indeed. lastly, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on um, some super informed, concise views and, and great to have the discussion. Um, but outside of all of that um, and outside of everything you do at KOTU, how do you like to spend your time?
1: So I have a 10 month old daughter named Soraya and any chance I get, we are playing with blocks and um, practicing our crawling. Um, so this is uh, a vast majority of my time these days. Um, sometimes happens in the middle of the night, by the way. Um, and then the second thing I'm really focused on right now, I'm in the process of launching a nonprofit that supports broadening access to mental health resources for youth. So we're going to start in the East Bay and and hopefully put some of these tools into the hands of um you know, kids uh, you know, all across the San Francisco Bay Area, um you know, as it relates to mental health and therapy.
0: amazing. And anything we can help to do to help promote that, we're more than happy to do. Oh. You still got me
1: you you just came back.
0: Gotcha. Oh. I was saying anything we can do to be helpful there, more than happy to help publicize.
1: I I really appreciate that. I'll circle back with you. We we're planning a formal launch in a couple of months here, but I'll definitely make sure in the loop.
0: Sounds great. Um it's been an absolutely pleasure having you on, Michael. And you know, we'd we'd love to have you on another time. And it's been it's been a great, great podcast.
1: Yeah. Anytime. And and thank you again. Uh, you guys have done a phenomenal job. It's a it's a podcast I listen to um and will continue to. So thank you so much again.
0: Thanks, Michael.